Welcome, ladies, gentlemen, seafarers, mariners, and amphibians from beyond. You are listening to the Je Nicole pod series. The opinions presented in this series do not represent the official position of any government, organization, or entity. Welcome, everyone, to the latest Je Nicole pod episode. I'm your host, Lucy, and today we will be discussing naval operations and modernization in the Asian context. Today, I am joined by Dr. Colin Coe of RSIS at Nanyang Technological University, Singapore. Really appreciate you joining us on Journey, Cole. Colin, how are you today? Yeah, I'm good. Thanks so much, Lucy, for inviting me for this podcast. Not a problem at all. Now, I guess before we begin on a naval tour of the Asian region, I thought it important to touch on offence-defence theory as it's one of your interests and it's a common thread woven through a lot of your work. Mm. And I know defence, you know, being for security enhancement and then offence to challenge prevailing centres of power as a you know, quick introduction. But the offence-defence theory is the view that an unequal balance in favour of defensive measures can prevent conflict. Is that correct? Can you please provide a brief overview of this school of thought for our listeners? Sure. I mean, basically, we are talking about this thing called the offence-defence theory that came about uh, during the Cold War. So, you know, it was during the Cold War era where, you know, the context of the likely uh, Third World War uh, that will happen, that might happen back then in Europe, sparked off, you know, a, a sort of renewed interest looking at this particular theory, especially amongst uh, the northern European uh, scholars. They were looking at the possibility of adopting what they call non-offensive defense or non-provocative defense that can allow them to sort of stay out of a likely conflict between uh, the NATO and the Warsaw Pact back then. So, of course, this debate subsequently continued into the post-Cold War where there is this, you know, emerging literature that looks at this so-called offense-defense theory and that is basically um, segregated into two schools. So, one has to do with what we call offense-defense balance and the second one is what we call offense-defense distinction. So, now, the thing is, the debate that is still ongoing to this day is to what extent the defense has greater advantage over taking offense. And so the thing is, in order to address this question, much of the literature actually touched on the, the, the sort of, you know, a debate, sort of sub-debate on the fact that, you know, if you want to address the question of the offense-defense balance, then you have to first of all be able to make the so-called offense-defense distinction. So this leads us to a very uh, confusing, very complex uh, pathway in this scholarly debate when we talk about the very unlikely um, situation where we have to distinguish weapon systems and military capabilities along both offense and defense lines. Because if you look at the modern weapon systems of today, basically a good number of platforms that are in service of modern militaries are multifunctional in nature. So if we might be able to look at offense-defense distinction and offense-defense balance in the terrestrial context, so we're talking about land forces uh, by which you might be able to draw the sort of distinction and balance, but this is not so easily done when it comes to the maritime context because you're talking about most naval platforms essentially are dual used in nature. The same warship can be designed and can be optimized for use in under various conditions in various scenarios. A good example will be um, landing ships. I mean, landing ships uh, tend to invoke this sort of memory of a D-Day Normandy landing operation. Right, that is obviously a very offensive type of operation that we can envisage for amphibious landing ships. But at the same time, if you think about what happened in December 2004 with the Indian Ocean tsunami, this same platform is used to carry humanitarian assistance and disaster relief to the countries affected. So this is 
a humanitarian and somewhat defensive use of a particular platform. So what I'm trying to draw here is this very uh, complex dichotomy when we talk about the offense-defense distinction in the naval realm that is increasingly blurred. I mean, if anything, I can think of one type of weapon system in the naval sphere that could be used largely for defensive purposes. Some will argue minesweepers. But then again, some scholars will argue minesweepers, even though as a platform, they are not armed with offensive weapon systems, right? Compared to, say, submarines or destroyers. But if you use it in the grander scheme of an offensive military operation, it makes a difference. So, in a way, this leads us down to a very complicated situation that is unresolved to this day when this discussion about offense-defense distinction and offense-defense balance wouldn't just you know, be couched merely in terms of military technology. You have to look at military capability as a whole. It's a holistic sum of all parts. You're talking about the doctrine that's involved. You're talking about the concept of operations that's involved. You're talking about the military capability in terms of the hardware, the software, as well as the human uh, operators that operate all these uh, systems. So it's a very complex ecosystem that we're talking about. So I, I wouldn't be so surprised why today there is a, a much less uh, discussion on these offense-defense theory, largely because there might have been a recognition in the literature that there's a saturation point that we've reached, you know, by which some scholars may have decided, you know, the discussion about this theory has become quite close to meaningless because of how, you know, modern military capabilities have evolved to this day. Yeah, and I, you beat me to the punchline there. I was just about to ask how you actually interpret that. So what stands out to me is that these different offence and defensive measures supposedly are characterised how they're characterised and surely these are not universal terms as well and quite contextual. And I know you talked about um, you've got to look at the capability and, you know, the supporting military systems, but it could also be hard for a state to ascertain what is offensive and what is de defensive based on their artistic inter interpretation and um, the political context as well. Do you think the political context has has um, a role to play as well? Like certain countries or certain regions may see something from a certain state differently than another country would. Yes, certainly. Uh, Lucy, this is a very good question because ultimately uh, you have to recall that the discussion about the so-called non-provocative defence which leads on to these, you know, sort of cottage industry on um, offense-defense theory stems from the study on the security dilemma in the first place. Because end of the day, northern European scholars, when they first talk about non-provocative defense, their overarching aim isn't just to prevent a third world war erupting across their borders back then. It was largely also meant to address this long-standing issue that has plagued um, international politics to this day, which is a security dilemma. And by that, we're looking at largely the political intentions of countries. And of course, the security dilemma works on this premise that all states are essentially black boxes when it comes to information. It's very difficult to sort of probe into what each state, what each government is thinking when it comes to defense planning and the overarching intentions that underpin those defense preparation. And because of the black box, the opposing side or you know the outside these black box, uh, countries uh, who might be potentially enemies of that one country or you know just simply a neighbor of this one country may have to assume that they will have to embark on a certain countervailing action in response to what they see as a likely malign um, intention behind those arming processes. So because of that, this political intention is very important uh, context to think about because ultimately the offense-defense theory actually could be deemed as a discussion on two analytical planes. One is a strategic plane for analysis. Mm -hmm. The other one is the operational plane for analysis. So far, the offense-defense theory, when it comes to the distinction and the balance, has largely been couched primarily in operational terms. We're talking about 
platforms are talking about tactics, we're talking about military strategy. But if we go higher, we are talking about the case of a grand strategic posture of a particular country, where we talk about the broader intentions of the country. And this leads on to the understanding that even though a country may adopt a largely offensive posture, but generally the country's strategic aims are defensive. Yeah. By large. But then we hit another roadblock when it comes to the debate because let's recall, I mean, China, for example, when it comes to the South China Sea, it's argued that whatever it's doing in the South China Sea, including the island building, the militarization, has been self-defensive. So essentially, it is saying that it's all because we are trying to protect ourselves. So it is deemed to be a strategically defensive posture. But then again, the debate goes in two directions. One is if you go with the Chinese camp, obviously you agree that you know whatever the Chinese were doing operationally, it could be offensive in nature, but ultimately you believe that China has benign political intention because it is a strategically defensive posture. But those, especially, I will assume the, the rival nations in the South China Sea, including those in Southeast Asia, and even those like the US, for instance, would deem China's posture to be anything but defensive. So it is, it is not couched in defensive political intentions. So again, you know, there is no clear answer to the issue of how we look at the political context because it could be interpreted very differently. And again, we go back to this wicked problem of a security dilemma. And this is, I will see as a sort of um, an unresolved debate, even after our generation. Yeah, and I know about six months ago, I was reading um, a really good book on China by M. Taylor Fravel called Active Defence. Mm. And I know while this book was primarily focused on providing insights into China's changing military strategies, which they term strategic guidelines, he also talks about offensive bias in warfare. But even more generally, um, he uses China as an example of blurring the lines between this offence and defence. And I don't know, do you perceive that there is something difficult in the Western mind that they can understand this concept of um, like active defence or is it just um, mm. perceived as um, offensive to achieve political aims? What's your view on that? Yeah, okay. I mean, the the, the Chinese use this term called active defence. Uh, in, in Chinese, it's called ji fang wei. And this is indirect, uh, sort of a contrary so the previous strategy, what they call passive defense or beidong uh, from you. So in, in a way, you know, it is just a, a sort of a name um, by itself, but the overarching or the underlying premise is actually just what, what we know about, which is offensive defense in nature, because it is more political than anything else. The Chinese wouldn't want to use the term offensive defense because it does carry a certain negative political connotation, right? So the term offensive defense couldn't be used. So by the use of the term active defense, it does actually say the same thing. I mean, if we talk about offensive defense, basically, you know, it goes back to the very favorite uh, line that is used by most of the military professionals that the best defense or the best form of defense is offense, actually. You have to take the initiative to the enemy. You have to take the battle to the enemy at the time of the choosing, and in the case of the Chinese, it is largely in terms of pushing the debt of the defense. And by that, it means a forward posture that we are talking about. And a forward posture isn't exactly defensive to a number of people, because if you go by the term of uh, so forward posture, it means the likelihood of extending your debt of defense beyond your internationally recognized boundary, right? And that will li likely also mean that you have to take the battle into the enemy's territory or a foreign territory if need be. But for the Chinese, it's active defense. It is active defense because it is not offensive in largely strategic terms. So that is you know, how we will interpret the way the Chinese look at it. But then again, I will I'll stress active defense is just a Chinese name for what we commonly know about as offensive defense. 
Okay. Wow, that's really insightful. Thanks so much for that, Colin. And I guess now going back to the Southeast Asian region um, more generally, what do you, and this is a big question, so um, sorry in advance, Mm. but what do you foresee as the biggest contingent factors that could actually lead to military or paramilitary offensive action in the Southeast Asian region? Well, I mean, this is a really a big question. And of course, if you look at, uh, you know, those in the South China Sea, I just use the, the South China Sea as one example because this is where you don't just see the Chinese operating in the area, but you're also looking at a number of Southeast Asian players uh, working against each other at times. A good example here would be, you know, if you look at the North Natuna Sea, that is um, what the Indonesians With claim. Indonesia, yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, one thing to note is that uh, the Indonesians will tell you that these days they don't really encounter that many Chinese fishermen. Of course, you know, when you talk about Chinese fishermen, we tend to think about maritime militia that operates within those waters. But recently, in the more recent years, the Indonesians were talking about they encountering more Vietnamese fishermen instead. So this is what I'm, I'm trying, trying to drive at is that some of the Southeast Asian players are also looking at you know, using uh, you know, sort of paramilitary or even quasi-military uh, players in the South China Sea. And the one likelihood of that happening, I would see is largely to do with fishery um, of all types of contingencies. And again, I wouldn't see it as Firstly, a premeditated uh, clash altogether. We will have to assume that due to the economic interdependencies that were involved in the region, due to certain political stakes that were involved, including the, the, the desire to not internationalize disputes in the South China Sea for, for the most part, those players, including China and those in Southeast Asia, they will do their best to ensure that they will try to de-escalate where possible. And that also, by extension, means that there's a low chance of a premeditated uh, sort of clash unless there is a very strong urge. Um, and, you know, one thing I can think about would be for China uh, in, in the coming years, and, and that is likely to do, do with um, the domestic situation in China in the long run. But we we'll, uh, have assumed that the more likely scenario will be an accidental or a sort of an inadvertent clash in the South China Sea. And the source of it would largely be to do with fishery than anything else. So far we have seen, I mean, why some people will ask, you know, Colin, why wouldn't you talk about, you know, hydrocarbon, uh, you know, resource uh, exploration as a sort of a source of this sort of conflict? So far, you know, one thing to note is that when it comes to hydrocarbons, the, the economic, the commercial stakes that were involved and most of the time involving international players will tend to mitigate against the likelihood of a clash that will involve hydrocarbon uh, exploitation activities or extraction activities in the South China Sea. But when it comes to fishery, that is pretty much a very national uh, activity that we are talking about, which thereby will lend it uh, more likely to the to the possibility of a clash that will involve intervention and counter intervention of the various rival coastal states, military or paramilitary or quasi-military forces. And if anything, so far one thing we can be quite confident about is that we are very sure about the extent of the fishery um, uh, sort of um, well, how how you call it the fishery. Uh, population or, or, or the fishery yield in the South China Sea. I think this is pretty much well known. But when it comes to the hydrocarbon resources, this is still somewhat an unknown to most people. Um, so that is also one reason why uh, you wouldn't see countries enthusiastically trying to pit against each other on the military front when it comes to hydrocarbon. And for the large part, this is one area that's safe. But for the fishery, that's one issue. And the last thing that I want to highlight here that will underpin uh, my opinion on this is it has to do a lot also with what we have seen the past few years. Most of the most serious incidents 
that we saw in the South China Sea had a lot more to do with fishery, mm. not hydrocarbon. So a good example, the 2012 Scarborough Shoal incident uh, between the Filipinos and the Chinese. And of course, the, those between the Vietnamese and the Chinese uh, of the Paracel Islands, and of course, those between Indonesia and the Vietnamese and the Chinese of the North Natuna Sea. And of course, between Malaysia and Vietnam of the coast of Sarawak, for instance, or even off the peninsula east coast. So all these are fishery incidents we are talking about. So these are, I will see, as the primary cause of such a contingency that you highlighted. Those. Yeah, I definitely share some of those views. I know a lot of um, media attention, particularly we're looking at media, not academics here, but they do focus on the hydrocarbon exploration. But I know even just in uh, research of the last 18 months, there's been so many incidents with fishermen between those claimant states that you could see come up in the news, like Mm. the fishing vessels have been detained or the fishermen have been detained or ramming incidents and things like that. So, yeah, I think that's a really good point. Now, just talking about grey fleets and Southeast Asian navies, starting with Singapore, um, what are the key developments in in the future of the Republic of Singapore Navy and what do you think their intent is for their future operations and also the interoperability with other Southeast Asian nations? Thank you. Uh, This is certainly something that is very close to my heart because I'm a Singaporean. Uh, My first uh, major research has been on the Singapore Navy. I think this is, to try to encapsulate it into a nutshell, is that Singapore is an island nation. It, it depends on maritime access for survival and prosperity. And as you know, Singapore is a small country without strategic debt. So a forward defense posture of Singapore has necessarily um, had to be maritime in nature as well. So because of that, the traditional defense and naval planning has largely been a forward-looking posture that we're we're talking about. But in the more recent decade, the primary maritime threat to Singapore is terrorism at sea. So that has never changed so far. It it has in large part to do with a changed geopolitical environment in Southeast Asia, where you you talk about the recent one decade, the relationship between Singapore and its closest neighbours, which are also the more likely adversaries in the conflict um, back then in the Cold War had been Malaysia and Indonesia. Those ties had been uh, much better compared to the Cold War era and the 1990s. So these days, much of the threat has been to do with terrorism and other forms of violent extremism that you can find at sea, from the sea, for example. And the case of the Mumbai attacks back in 2008 had been a very instrumental example that Singapore has been looking at in terms of how this sort of threat is perceived and how one will counter that. But then again, you know, some will be mistaken with the understanding that Singapore only prepares for this threat. This is not true. For a small country like Singapore, labor planning necessarily has to be capabilities-based and not threat-based. So even though the threat primarily is terrorism or, or non-traditional in nature, the planning for, for naval acquisitions and for the concept operations is across the spectrum. We're talking about you know, low-intensity operations like counter-terrorism and the likelihood of fighting a high-intensity conflict at sea. So the planning has to go across the spectrum. So that leads to the understanding that is a long held even to this day is that the Republic of Singapore Navy has to have a balanced set of capabilities. So these are balanced capabilities will have to allow Singapore to effect a forward posture. And that forward posture is regionally concentrated in nature. But as you will be aware, you see is the Singapore Navy has sent ships to the Gulf of Aden for counter piracy operation. And that is largely an international security and defense diplomacy move by nature. But the primary uh, area of focus has always been Southeast Asia. And even though Singapore has no plan and he has no claims in the South China Sea, it does prepare for the likelihood of a conflict in the South China Sea. So because of that, what we are going to see in the coming years has been moving ahead with these sort of full spectrum planning. But there's one complication here that has a very huge part to play, 
in this planning is Singapore has a falling birth rate. Yeah. <laughs> this is very important. I mean, this is something that I believe Singapore isn't alone. I mean, look at Japan, you look at South Korea, you look at many other countries around metropolitan city-states. They tend to face the same problem. And therefore, the need to try to go towards a fleet that is not just balanced, but the likelihood of the fleet size to be smaller. But at the same time, the fleet size, while smaller, it doesn't sacrifice the firepower and the overall combat capability. So because of that, the trend that we can see in the coming years has been on larger platforms. Larger platforms that are multi-functional in nature. And that goes back to our earlier discussion about offense and defense distinction. That you know, when you move towards multifunctional platforms like this, there's no way you can distinguish anything. So they can perform a whole spectrum of operations from peace to wartime. So they are larger because they're supposed to accommodate in the future retrofits and upgradation to capabilities so that you don't have to replace the platform too quickly. So you can actually allow each platform to last through a longer service life cycle. And the other additional requirement is not just those platforms have to be larger, but the crew size has to be smaller. And so therefore, if a larger platform, the smaller and leaner crewing requirement that touches a lot on automation. And of course, it also will have a very huge element of unmanned systems to go along. So this is the trend that we're looking at. Be it you're talking about preparing against terrorism at sea or fighting a high-intensity conflict at sea. And if we just jump across now to Indonesia, I know we mentioned it before in the context of the Natuna Sea, but what do you think Indonesia's naval priorities are? I mean, obviously we know they have the minimal essential force, um, which we might need to explain for some of our listeners, and then their disputed EZ, and then we also see a overlapping with the Chinese Nine-Dash Line, the claimed EZ, but then also Vietnamese um, fishing fleets as well as the Chinese ones. So what do you think the Indonesians are prioritising and can, will continue to prioritise in the future, Colin? Mm. Well, Lucy, basically you answered part of the question, actually, because <laughs> a number of potential uh, travel areas for Indonesia. And of course, generally, Indonesia being the world's largest archipelagic nation has a rather unenviable task. If you look at the the sort of land water ratio for Indonesia, and then you compare this ratio with the, the size of the Indonesian Navy. And if you cover it together with the existing civilian agencies like Bakamla, for example, you'll find that the, the, the Indonesian maritime forces are somewhat lopsidedly disproportionate in size compared to the archipelagic expense that it has to produce. So the broader aims of the Indonesians is to move towards gaining the sufficient size that they're looking at. So that is where what you mentioned about the minimum essential force came into being. The minimum essential force has been implemented for more than a decade. And this is separated into three phases that we're talking about. Right now, we're talking about it entering the last phase, phase three, which is supposed to last from 2020 till 2024. So as you can see, there's just three years left for the minimum essential force. And the one thing that sort of came in to throw the spanner into the works is the COVID-19. Because generally, the Indonesians now find it very difficult or more difficult to fund key acquisitions, or what they call alusista, uh, primary weapon systems, like warships, for instance. There is still an outstanding requirement for submarines, there's still an outstanding requirement for frigates and corvettes. There's still an outstanding requirement for other auxiliaries for the Indonesian Navy. Which, if you ask me, looking at the current projection right now, looking at the COVID-19 and the ongoing impact on the economy in the next few years, I have very little confidence that the MEF could be accomplished in any form. So it will only at best be partially accomplished and the one thing that the Indonesians may be looking at is to try to get foreign loans in order to finance those purchases. But the bigger question is, can the Indonesian population at large, can the public accept more debt that will be taken on by the Indonesian government? So that is 
a bigger question that we have to ask. And of course, this is going to militate against any moves towards getting those big ticket uh, military items for the Navy because in terms of optics, it's not going to look very nice because ultimately, the, the Indonesian probably will ask the, the incumbent Jokowi government, you know, why wouldn't you spend those billions of US dollars on getting vaccines? Why wouldn't you want to fund social amelioration programs um, for, you know, the, for the small medium industries? in Indonesia, which are suffering uh, from the pandemic. So these are key questions, especially for democratic society like Indonesia. But then again, I don't envy Indonesia not just because of COVID-19, but and not just because of the disproportionate nature of the fleet size, but also because of the large uh, array of security issues that is looking at. If you look at the Indonesian defense documents, is, is very much a, a very vaccine exercise. The reason why is when you examine Indonesia's defense documents, you'll find that they're trying to explain many things, but they end up not explaining at all. The reason why is when you are trying to find out what are those priorities that they are looking at in terms of threat perceptions. Basically, those documents are telling you they prioritize everything. <laughs> and that is that is very challenging for analysts like us because basically they talk about separatism in, in, in Papua, for example. They talk about cyber, they talk about uh, Natuna uh, issues with China and Vietnam. They talk about you know um, arms racing other nations around the region. And it only tends to give the conclusion that like Singapore, they are actually planning across the spectrum mm. and hoping that this whole spectrum planning and acquisition can allow them to deal with a whole spectrum of security challenges when it comes. But it is quite another question where we talk about whether for each of those missions that were envisaged for the Indonesian Navy, they could accomplish them effectively as equal. So that is you know, the big question we have. But the assumption is if you plan for the full spectrum, then the, there's a chance that you can prepare and you can react mm. to the whole spectrum of security challenges. So that's Indonesia, actually. And, and in effect, the solution they, they come across is they need to do a capabilities-based defense planning. And that largely ties in with why they conceive the minimum essential force in the first place. And the bigger question to have is the Indonesians are not alien to operating second-hand equipment. I mean, they've been doing that for decades. And the issue here is second-hand equipment comes with a safety cost. And the Indonesian armed forces are not exactly well known for safety records when it comes to operating, especially older equipment. So the broader question is, if they want to fulfill the MEF, then the likely pathway that can allow them a higher chance of success is to go second-hand. But the question is, would that be more costs imposed on the Indonesian in terms of safety and maintenance and whether the Indonesian public will accept that? So I would say Indonesian defense planners and policy elites are sort of caught between a rock and a hard place. Yeah, I don't envy their position. Absolutely. Now, I was reading your article you wrote for the Asian Security Journal in 2019 on Sino-Indian rivalry at sea, where you mentioned increased Indian Ocean and Western Pacific deployments and naval deployments as key factors in this expanding rivalry, but for different reasons for each. India is being concerned about Chinese Indian Ocean deployments and passing through the area due to its expanding blue water capability in submarines. And then China is wary of India's increased presence heading further and further east as part of what they perceive a US containment strategy. Can you take just a couple of minutes to highlight a few key points of this argument for our listeners? Yeah, sure. Basically, you know, I'm looking at the maritime dimension of the Sino-Indian uh, security dilemma uh, on the sort of assumption that each of these players are essentially uh, security maximizers, not power maximizers per se. There are legitimate reasons to talk about it. Uh, if you look at the, for the Chinese, they had no outstanding territorial and sovereignty claims in the Indian Ocean. For one reason, 
they may have land borders with the South Asian countries like India, Nepal, and Pakistan, but they have no direct seaboard to the Indian Ocean. And they have no overseas maritime possessions in the Indian Ocean proper. But they do have outstanding uh, security interests when it comes to energy supply uh, in particular. So they do have those legitimate security uh, or I mean, interests in the Indian Ocean. They would therefore sort of, you know, oblige Beijing to try to project naval force as further afield westward into the Indian Ocean to secure those interests. But then again, we always come across with this roadblock where, you know, the Chinese not just have a straightforward territorial dispute on land with India. This territorial dispute and other outstanding differences between India and China have a maritime dimension in large part has to do with China's ongoing and expanding maritime interest in the Indian Ocean region with Indian neighbors like Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, Pakistan. and Pakistan in particular. Hmm, yeah. So because of that, it does sort of heighten India's sort of threat perception towards China that goes beyond the disputed land border that we have seen in recent months. Um, even though the border disengagement is ongoing and, and for some part, yes, we completed. But then again, we cannot discount that the Indian and Chinese continue to face off each other in the Indian Ocean from time to time. The Indians are not actively obstructing what the Chinese were doing in the Indian Ocean region when it comes to the naval activities. But for sure, the Indians were tracking the Chinese Navy in the Indian Ocean and trying to make sense of what they're trying to do and try to decipher intent. On the other hand, for the Indians, they do have an, a legitimate security interest in the Western Pacific region, in large part because of energy cooperation with Russia's Far East, in particular, where you know energy is being shipped across um, the waters back to India. And so this is one particular area that the Indians have. And of course, if you look at the very huge Indian diaspora in Asia, in Southeast Asia in particular, and the investments and the economic uh, activities in Southeast Asia, there is a clear economic and strategic interest for India over in this part of the world in the Western Pacific. So because of that, you know, this is an issue for China because, you know, if anything, the Chinese have regarded the peripheral waters, or what I call the near seas for China, such as the South China Sea, the East China Sea, the Yellow Sea, as essentially its periphery. Its periphery that is supposed to form a very important part or the core element of its active defense strategy. Whereby, if you have any of those foreign warships that to sort of traverse those waters, it's certainly going to cause a problem. But if you pull into the South China Sea dispute, the situation is complicated by the fact that India's economic interest has um, an energy dimension as well. And the energy dimension has a lot to do with Vietnam. And it is somewhat interesting to note that Vietnam is a key South China Sea rival of China. So for China, it is quite natural to expect Beijing to tend to look at India's involvement in those activities with Vietnam in the South China Sea with concern. So we have past incidences where the Chinese tried to sort of observe and in, in one instance tried to challenge the Indian Navy's operation in the South China Sea. But so far, we have yet to see any new such developments happening. And it might have a lot to do with the fact that the Chinese these days felt a little bit more confident of themselves in the South China Sea that they could monitor, they could track, and they could even preempt in advance any incoming movements of foreign navies into the South China Sea, which allowed them the opportunity to dispatch forces and to sort of monitor them uh, at the first instance. So if they could monitor them, they probably felt a little bit more secure. So this is something that I believe the Indians see it as a same situation in the Indian Ocean with the one problem that the Indian Ocean is a much larger water space. So it does create a much greater difficulty and complexity for the Indians in trying to monitor such a huge water space we're talking about. So 
this is basically you know trying to I'm trying to encapsulate um my key um sort of writings in that particular Asian security article. Yeah, and you mentioned Vietnam, and Vietnam's probably one of the most outspoken Southeast Asian claimants. Um, but one we haven't really talked about is Malaysia. Do you have any um, comments to make on their role in the South China Sea conflict, but also current status of their Navy and uh, Naval Modernization Program? Yeah, thank you. Uh, this is uh, another very big question that I'll try to sort of shrink it down uh, as much as possible. Politically, Malaysia has regarded China as a partner. So there is a broader so-called big picture relationship that Kuala Lumpur has been sort of um, with China. There are a few historical instances, look at it. Malaysia was the first Southeast Asian country that diplomatically recognizes the People's Republic of China. Right, so that is what his history we are talking about. And in the more recent years, China has been the largest trade partner of Malaysia. So these are historical and contemporary economic interests that we are talking about that underpin the broader relationship. And we look at Malaysia, uh, looking at the more recent uh, circumstances that Malaysia has found itself in, prior to COVID-19, Malaysia has been settled with debt. I mean, got to do with the one MDB scandal under the then Najib administration, that is, you know, a, a, very, a very huge financial disaster for Malaysia that was inherited by the new Pakatan government that lost power after you know, less than three years. Um, and then now it's a Perikatan government under reading. Nothing changed when it comes to the broader economic outlook between Malaysia and China in the grander scheme of the South China Sea dispute. For Malaysia, there is this ongoing difference with China, but there is always a very assiduous effort by Malaysia to avoid what I would call a megaphone diplomacy with China. So Malaysia doesn't make it public. It's discontent with China. In some ways, you can see Malaysia trying to downplay this dispute with China because it doesn't want to sort of put it in the public uh, for debate or to attract more attention. But then again, you'll be mistaken that to, for us to understand that the, China, the, the Malaysians were essentially surrendering to the Chinese. That's not true. Uh, this is a very popular myth that is that sort of portrayed or alluded to by the mainstream media. That's not true. The Malaysians tried their best to challenge the Chinese in the maritime domain. Even though on the surface, in the public domain, there is very little that the Malaysians seem to be doing. At sea, the Malaysians try to challenge the Chinese, even though it's one matter on the other hand to talk about whether this response is optimal or suboptimal. The general sentiment that I, that I have and the observation I have looking at what they have done so far is the response to, to the Chinese had been pretty suboptimal at best. So the Malaysians could gain full marks for making an effort, but not gaining full marks when it comes to making the real effort in challenging. For one reason, because the Malaysian maritime forces had been rather hamstrung in capacity for decades. And one way for the Malaysians to try to overcome it is the plan that was floated a few years back, what they call a 15 to 5 fleet transformation program that was being first um, proposed by the then Navy chief. And this plan, so far on paper, is still on paper to be ongoing. But the issue here is, it is a very ambitious uh, program we're talking about because the whole plan calls for the rationalization of the existing fleet from 15 different classes of ships to just five. But if you look at it this way, it will mean the Navy has to replace a number of classes with one particular class of a larger vessel, right? But then again, the issue here is the Malaysian Navy has been short on funding and there's a governance issue at play as well where you know defense acquisition hasn't been exactly transparent. The accountability issue is persistent. Uh, there is a recent very good example of the Malaysian frigate program with the French where you know there is a non-delivery uh, that is sort of overran the schedule uh, with the French um, prime contractor, but 
the Malaysian subcontractor or the partner contractor failed to follow up with compensation with the French shipbuilder. Yeah, yeah. And the French ship, the French ship hasn't actually entered service yet. So that is a governance issue by and large. And of course, the Malaysians do face the double issue of funding as well as governance when it comes to defense acquisition. COVID-19 basically just made the situation worse. I mean, if anything, before COVID-19, there is already a lot of doubt about whether the 15 to 5 program is going to even materialize. But now with COVID-19, that's going to be worse. Well, that's really insightful. I really appreciate all your insights. That pretty much wraps up the core part of the uh, podcast, Colin, and your depth of knowledge and nuanced understanding of the complex security situation in the area is very valuable both to myself and our listeners. Uh, now we'll move into what we do at the end of every podcast, and that's the Sailor's Three. Uh, for new listeners, that's three questions we ask every person, and they're very difficult questions, but um, <laughs> they're also a little bit fun. So the first question is, what is one of your favourite military platforms that is currently in service in the in the world in a mil, in a military somewhere or has been in history? And just a quick sentence or two about why. Hmm. I mean, my favourite military platform has always been a submarine. Um, it's a mysterious platform. Uh, it has uh, captured a lot of public attention these days, in large part because of the the sort of mystery and the enigma that surrounds this particular platform and the services. That we're talking about and one thing is to note that in the coming years the submarine is going to become more important because as navies started to become more sophisticated as navies start to downsize in terms of the, of, of the quantity um, they are going to look at what they call force multipliers in the future to compensate for the reduction in size and one, one way to do that is to look at the prospect of acquiring an undersea capability. It's going to become increasingly more important. At the same time, it is my favorite platform because, you know, end of day, you know, I'm always this uh, military uh, tech fan who's looking at you know, those uh, slinky, uh, cylindrical uh, objects that go underneath the surface and poking up the periscope and, you know, you start to wonder what kind of periscope is that? Is it a traditional periscope or is it just a photonic mass that we're talking about? And you know, to what extent um, the crew is able to adapt to life? I mean, in as much I'm interested in the platform, I'm, I'm actually a little bit more interested in how the crew live their life on board those vessels, actually. And I have many interesting stories that are shared with me and that actually sort of you know, pick my interest further in trying to probe uh, deeper into it. Yes, I agree. There is definitely an enigma surrounding submariners and the work that they do, for sure. Mm. Um, our next question is, what is the most interesting emerging technology in your view? And that can be at any stage of development. So some of our previous guests have said things like cyber or unmanned submarines and there's a whole range of things. But what would be one that you think is quite remarkable? Well, I mean, in terms of emerging military technology, it might not be military technology per se. Uh, it, it, it could be dual use. I'm particularly interested in 3D printing, uh, actually, because 3D printing essentially, to me, uh, is a game changer or what some people would call additive manufacturing, right? Um, I mean, if you look at the very recent developments, 3D printing could revolutionize how we look at platform manufacture and platform maintenance, repair, and overhaul. Good example here would be uh, at one point of time, uh, even I think it's still undergoing you know, pilot trial stage. The US Marines were actually trying to use 3D printing on board one of those Navy's landing uh, helicopter subships that, that will be designed largely for the F-35B uh, joint strike fighter where they use 3D printing as a way to do rapid maintenance for, for those airplanes. How that will translate into you know how operations and tempos are being are being affected to me is very interesting. And of course with our 3D printing it goes down to you know the sphere of even unmanned systems and other traditional platforms. So I think 3D printing is something that we need to look at of course 
if you go beyond the traditional maritime security sphere, we are looking at how 3D printing could be used by non-state actors for maritime security. So this is a pretty much under study field and the legal, the political consequences and ramifications are still much to be debated. Yeah, that is a really fascinating answer, one that I haven't thought of. And, you know, long term, as that capability develops, it'd be really interesting to see how it might remediate in some ways the issues with the capability acquisition cycle and repairs as well. So that's fascinating. Now for our last question, Colin, it's the wild card. So you can pick to answer one of three questions. You can either make a prediction for the future of military ops you can recommend a book that all emerging leaders in the industry should read or you can provide a tip for future leaders. So you're going to pick a prediction, a book or a tip today. Mm, thank you, Lucy. Uh, I'm not going to look at the crystal ball. Uh, I'm not going to pretend <laughs> that I'm, I'm, I'm a prophet. Uh, so what I'm trying to do is to uh, recommend a book. Um, this, is, this is something that ties in very close uh, to my entire enterprise as a scholar in maritime security, uh, the book uh, Sea Power by Professor Jeffrey Taylor is certainly the book that you know people in, in our line uh, when it comes to those uh, maritime scholars or you're talking about maritime practitioners like the navies, coast guard, they had to read it. Uh, I believe a number of navies and coast guards and even government services have been reading the book. I mean, it's been translated into many languages around the world, but this book is not a, a it's not a it's not, not a static book by itself because you know so long as Professor Teal is still with us, this book has been updated regularly. So it would be very useful to look at how the book is read and how updated it is to go along with the new trends of maritime security and naval affairs. It's a highly recommended book. And one reason that why I want to recommend that is because Professor Teal has been my supervisor for my PhD back then. And I, I, I'm very much inspired by the book, by his scholarly enterprise on the whole, and I'm very grateful for his uh, sort of uh, tutelage over the past eight years of my PhD. So this is a book, Sea Power, uh, by Jeffrey Teal, that I would strongly recommend to any, any listener uh, up here. I completely agree. I have a very well-worn, dog-eared, highlighted, <laughs> scribbled-in copy of that book um, and also yeah. his other book, The um, Asia Naval Security, I think it's called An Arms Race in the Making, which is another good one. Yeah. So those mm. two books, in addition to Captain Hughes' Fleet Tactics and Naval Operations, are probably the anchors to all of my reading and research in this area. So I wholeheartedly agree, Colin. Um, thank you so much for joining us today on Journey Cole. I found it incredibly interesting and I know our listeners will too. And we hope to interview again one day soon, Colin. Sure, Lucy. Allow me to first of all thank you for inviting me to join the call to share my views and I look forward to collaborating in the future. Thank you for listening to Journey Cole Pod. Stay in contact with us via jeunecole underscore pod on Twitter or www.jeunecole.com.